Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way, and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Often people, you know, they see the rise of Russia and think, oh, well, hell, this is a source of concern. But actually you need to think, well, you know, where the Russians are now is probably where the USA was in, I don't know, 1995. In the last few years, Russia's military has been on display, first in the breakaway region of Georgia, then in Ukraine, and now in Syria. There's been a lot of discussion online about just how far the military has come and how good some of the hardware now looks after decades of decay after the Soviet Union fell. This week on War College, we talk with Nick DeLaranaga. He works for Jane's Defense Weekly, which is the authority on weapon systems all over the world, and he specifically covers Russia. One of the things that we talked about, beyond sophisticated missiles and robots, is one of the things that might be a little bit less obvious as a motivation for Russia going into Syria. Proving your weapons on the battlefield is a terrific way to advertise them for sale. You're listening to War College, a weekly discussion of a world in conflict focusing on the stories behind the front lines. Here's your host, Jason Fields. Hello and welcome to War College. I'm Reuters opinion editor, Jason Fields. And I'm Matthew Galt, contributing editor, Wars Boring. Today we're talking with Nick DeLaranaga. He's the Europe editor for IHS Jane's Defense Weekly. And anything you want to know about defense and weaponry, that's the best place to turn. So, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So what new pieces of Russian equipment are you seeing Russia field right now? They're involved in Ukraine to a certain extent now and certainly in Syria. Is there anything you haven't seen before? Well, they've used a variety of systems that we haven't seen used before in an operational sense. Um, for example, in, in Syria, they've used the opportunity of that, uh, that conflict to deploy some of their latest fighter bomber aircraft, the, the Su-34, fullback as it's known to NATO. And that's the first operational deployment for that aircraft type. Perhaps the most interesting thing we've seen them do is we've seen them use um, long-range land attack cruise missiles in Syria, which is something that the Russians never really went in for before. You know, back in the days of the Cold War, um, you know, the Russian ethos was very much, particularly from the maritime point of view, very much on area denial. So in terms of, you know, preventing NATO navies getting close to Russian shores, they never really had this kind of capability to project power at distance. Um, and particularly in terms of, you know, having a long range land attack cruise missile, like, you know, the, the American equivalent would be the Tomahawk. You know, the Russians never quite had that uh, equivalent capability. 
and we've seen them now use these long-range land attack cruise missiles now from their bomber aircraft, uh, from their surface warships, and now from their submarines as well. So they've kind of demonstrated a, a kind of a, a complete triad of uh, long-range land attack missile capabilities, which was you know, something they didn't have during the Cold War. Now, obviously, right now they're deploying conventional warheads. Is that the kind of weapon that also can be equipped with nuclear warheads? Potentially. I mean, they're the right size to be able to, to fit a nuclear warhead. I mean, they're pretty much the same size as, a, uh, as an American Tomahawk, which has both a conventional and a nuclear warhead. So, yeah, they could put nuclear warheads on them. You know, obviously, that comes into uh, you know, nuclear weapons treaty proliferation issues. You know, there are, America's got a treaty with Russia setting out you know, exactly what the number of uh, nuclear warheads it can have and you know, the delivery mechanisms for that. That's called New START, um, is the name of that treaty. So there are restrictions on that. So at the moment, we don't think the Russians do uh, have nuclear weapons on these uh, cruise missiles, but certainly they, they could, they could uh, do so. You know, the Americans have been quite forceful in uh, complaining that the Russians have been breaching another treaty, uh, which is called the INF Treaty, which uh, restricts land-based long-range cruise missiles. And uh, the Americans have been quite vocal in saying that the Russians have been developing these. And it's probably a, just a land-based variant of the same missile they're firing off from ships and from the air. But actually, according to this treaty, they're not allowed to have them on land. From ships and from the air is fine, but not from land. And the Americans have been saying they have been developing these. What's the advantage of these weapons? Why, especially if it's in violation of a treaty, would you develop them? Um, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, when you're looking at uh, you know, projecting power at distance, Having a, a very long-range missile is you know, really advantageous because it allows you, you know, a standoff distance. You don't have to get you know, necessarily into another country's airspace you know, to, be able to, launch, to be able to launch it. In the case of the, uh, say the, the cruise missiles they launched um, from their naval vessels, they launched these missiles from the Caspian Sea. So you know, it's a several thousand mile journey. Um, I think it's about 1,500 kilometers, something like that. Um, these missiles had to fly before you know, reaching their targets in Syria. So they didn't have this range. They wouldn't be able to strike from the Caspian Sea. So that's kind of the main advantage in them. Nick, I'd like to ask about these tiny tank drones that we're seeing more about. You know, Popular Mechanics just ran a piece about the, the Ura-9. and uh, I'm curious if you could explain to us why you think that Russia is kind of pushing these now. And is there a future in this kind of technology? Are we going to see more of these tank drones? Sure. Well, I mean, uh, any. I mean, they're known kind of in uh, in the defense industry as unmanned ground vehicles (UGVs). You know, typically they've been used in the West for you know dangerous roles that you don't want to send a person into. So, for something like bomb disposal, you'd have like a basically little robot with a camera and an arm, you know, that can go and prod stuff. And uh, you know, you'd send that out to go look at what you might think might be a bomb or you know an IED or something like that. Um, you know, there's always been talk about maybe putting you know, weapons on them, and obviously the Russians are certainly going down that route at the moment. Um, they've developed quite a few different UGVs with weapons on them, you know, machine guns for the most part. And again, you know, you'd use that for somewhere you wouldn't want to send a, send a person, you know, somewhere particularly dangerous, um, or maybe just something, you know, maybe for you know, monitoring a border or something like that, where you know you could have one person controlling several of these uh, you know, ground-based robots you know, that could cover quite a large amount of distance. I mean, to say these are killer robots is kind of, uh, you know, it's often something you hear in the media, but that's perhaps over-egging over the point to a certain extent, because there's certainly, you know, there's a man controlling them. He's just, the difference is he's just not sitting in on the robot. He's just, 
you know, a couple of hundred meters further back. Any idea how effective machines like this are? Uh, you know, these haven't been seen in combat, so it's really hard to say at this point. A great, you know, part of that is how good the sensors are and how good, you know, the, uh, you know, the data links are at sending this information back to the person operating it. You know, if you've, you've flown like a, you know, like a, one of these small drones or something, you know often the camera on it's not very good. You don't get very good visibility of what's around you. So that is, is quite limiting. Yeah, that makes sense to me because a human being can swivel in an instant, has peripheral vision. Can and... auto zoom, you know, auto focus essentially. You know, you don't need to think or take time to focus on something. Your eye just does it like that. Are, like, are they heavily armored? Do they even care about that? Um, you'd have less need to armor them because, you know, you're not trying to protect a person. But obviously, you'd want the, the bit of equipment to be survivable in a battlefield, so you would want to armor it to a certain extent. But um, there's not a great deal of information out there about what the Russians are... You know, the actual specifications, of them, you know, they say they've got this system, but, you know, it's not actually been seen in combat. It's not actually used by the Russian military at this point. It's just kind of something they're demonstrating their capability that they can do this. It's more about kind of showing it and saying, like, this is something that's coming. This is something that we're working on. Yeah, exactly that. Exactly that. It's not something that the Russians are deploying to Syria at the moment. It's not something that we saw in Ukraine. It's just the Russians saying, look, we can do this. Which is kind of the the case, and correct me if I'm wrong, also with the, the Armada T-14. Their, their brand new shiny tank that they're saying is amazing and costs you know hundreds of billions of dollars. Can you kind of tell us about that tank? Well, it's, it's a fascinating piece of design. So the main tank the Russians use at the moment is a tank called the T-90. Um, and that's their top-of-the-line current tank uh, in service at the moment. But that tank, even though it's called the T-90, is actually basically the kind of just a, a younger brother, basically, of the T-72 tank, which the Russians developed in you know, the, early si the early 70s and the late 60s. So really what the Russian army is using at the moment is a really old piece of kit. You know, they've modernized it a bit, but it's, it's still essentially old and has a pretty nasty habit of blowing up quite spectacularly in, in war. And when you say they blow up, is it that if it's... Why? <laughs> I just should just ask why. Well, there, there are a couple of reasons for it. The main one is because... So in the West, we tend to have four men in our tanks. And we do that, we have a, you know, a driver, a commander, and uh, you know, two guys who are involved in you know, loading the gun, because the gun is manually loaded in like an American tank, the M1 Abrams. You have someone manually load the rounds into the tank. The Russians decided to take out that guy, so only have three guys, and the, has an autoloader system, so the gun automatically loads itself. But the problem with that is, is it means you can have, end up having large clusters of ammunition you're in the middle of the tank, which aren't secure. So say in like an Abrams, you'll have kind of the ammunition in separate compartments and you'll take it out to put it in the gun. Whereas with this autoloader system, you don't have that. So if anything gets into the middle of, you know, if you get hit by a missile or hit by an anti-tank round, anything that gets into the middle of the tank, breach the armor, will hit this enormous concentration of ammunition and blow up the entire thing. Ugh. So, so what uh, the Armada? Yeah, so what they've does done that with the Armada is they've... They call it an unmanned turret. So instead of, you know, having someone you know, in there with around all that ammunition, they put all the crew members at the front of the tank, and there's no one in the turret itself. So they call it an unmanned turret. And what that means is, you know, if the tank is probably still just as likely to blow up if it does get hit, but the crew will be will be able to survive because they're in a separate compartment, so they're kind of shielded away from that. So that's the main kind of. Uh, advantage really of this unmanned turret from you know, the crew's point of view is that if they do get hit you know they're much better protected 
because they're away from the ammunition. Have they fielded these T-14s anywhere yet, or has it just been like in Victory Day parades and, and such? Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they're a long way away from putting, putting this into service. Um, and at the moment, they're kind of starting to go through trials. But really, the vehicles we saw at the, at the May Day parade were prototypes, really early prototypes. So this isn't going to come into service, you know, probably in a realistic way for you know, at least a couple of years. And that's you know, if they're able to you know, keep funding it. The cost of these pieces of equipment are enormously expensive. You know, a, a modern main battle tank you know, probably costs about $5 million a pop. Um, you know, if you're looking to buy thousands of these, you know, very quickly you're talking about really large sums of money, and you're talking about very large sums of money to develop it. And you know, the Armata is, um, you know, because it's not based on these old designs, they've had to create everything from scratch. So, you know, in some ways that's new from a design point of view, and it allows them to add, you know, a lot more armor. It's a much larger tank than the old tanks that it will eventually replace. But the kind of counter to that is you end up spending a lot more money. Is there an American tank or British tank that? would be directly comparable. I don't know if we're even developing new tanks here in the United States, but yeah, is anything comparable to it? Well, um, at the moment, there's no effort in the US to replace the, the current US Army tank, which is the M1 Abrams, um, and neither in, in the UK with the Challenger 2, neither of those are you know on the slate to being replaced at the moment. They do go through um, upgrade processes, and in the UK, we're about to launch a kind of limited upgrade of our Challenger 2. Um, but I mean, really, you've got to look at this, not in the case of the Russians have suddenly leapt forwards ahead of the US and the UK and the Germans and everyone else. Really what's happened is, as I said, you know, the previous, the T-90 is basically this old T-72, which is you know, a kind of equivalent of, uh, you know, some of the later American M-60 Patton tanks. You know, so essentially the Russians have, are a generation behind in some, in some regards. You know, we've had a generation since in the 90s that you know came in and could replace those tanks, whereas the Armata really is, you know, bringing everything up to about the same generation as you know where we are now, and also maybe taking it a little step further. Um, but really, until you see this on the battlefield and actually this comes into service in a meaningful way, it's very hard to say, um, you know, exactly exactly you know how how good this is going to be. But I mean, modern tanks are so powerful, you know, taking out other tanks that. Um, you know, certainly, you know, I'd have thought an American tank would be perfectly capable of taking out an Armata, and vice versa. There was a lot of talk, not that long ago, that maybe tanks weren't the most important weapon on a battlefield anymore. And when you're looking at Ukraine in particular, there were a lot of photographs showing Russian tanks fighting each other, and it looked to me like the war that everyone had been expecting in uh, World War three in Europe. Does that change anything? Does that actually make the tank more important again? Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 
Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Well, I think the tank always has been important. I think, you know, a lot of naysayers of the tank, you know, were only focusing on the kind of wars we were fighting in the West you know, over the last 10 years, which was, you know, counterinsurgency conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan, where, you know, tanks aren't particularly important because you're not trying to fight other tanks because the guys you're fighting, you know, small arms is basically the extent of their equipment. Um, as soon as you start fighting another country, then tanks become very important because, you know, they're the kind of the, the most powerful thing on any battlefield actually on the ground. Um, and yeah, certainly you know, in Ukraine, we, we really saw that. And in the Syrian war at the moment, you know, tanks are important. Well, can you talk a little bit about Syria? Because I wondered if there are any similarities there to what happened with the Spanish Civil War, meaning that it's a place to try out weaponry and not directly along your own borders. Is any of that happening? Is uh, Russia rolling out new equipment and trying it out in Syria? To some extent, yes. A lot of these systems they've had for a long time, they just haven't been used in a war. What we didn't know about them was the exact capabilities and the range of, ranges of the missiles or the aircraft, because they just hadn't been used in a conflict, right? So, to a certain extent, you know, a lot of these aircraft, you know, they get used in trials all the time. You know, they'll drop bombs and missiles and stuff all the time in, in Russia. So, this is less about actually kind of testing your own capabilities as about demonstrating your capabilities to other people, if that makes sense. In the Spanish Civil War, things you know, like air power and bombing and uh, you know, saturation bombing of urban centres, you know, kind of the, the bomb mart of the 1930s, was something new, and that was kind of a new tactic that they were trying to implement. We're not seeing tactical innovation. What we're seeing is just demonstration of equipment capability to a greater extent, I'd say. Does that mean that it's almost like an advertisement for Russian arms sales as well as being a clear demonstration to any foes they might face? Yeah, absolutely. It's absolutely that. You know, particularly with the, with the missile capabilities, um, particularly with the, the naval capabilities, because Russia has quite a strong history of exporting naval vessels and uh, military submarines abroad. And so, you know, having this capability combat proven is you know, a really big selling point. Let's change tracks a little bit. I want to ask you about the T-50 stealth fighter what it is and where they are in the development cycle with it. Right, so the, the T-50, um, it's also known in Russian as the PAK-FA is the acronym they use for it as well. It's their, uh, it's their new stealth fighter and it's kind of designed to be, um, you know, the kind of the Russian equivalent of say an F-22 or an F-35. Much like you know, the American equivalents is that it carries its weapons internally and the outside of it is kind of shaped and contoured so it is less detectable to radar. I think at the moment they've got about five prototypes flying at this point. Um, they did have one got uh, quite an engine fire and burnt, burnt out, but I think they've now got that flying again. You know, they were originally planning to start rolling this out into service and so you start having operational squadrons in, you know, around this time really. But, you know, the program's fallen behind schedule. And, you know, with the economic woes the Russians are facing at the moment, that, you know, there's quite a lot of talk in Russian media circles about, and defense circles about, you know, to what extent they're going to be able to commit to the T-50 or whether they're going to have to scale back their, their plans for that program. I mean, much as in the way, you know, the similar debate happened in the U.S. with the F-22. I think the original plan was, you know, to have hundreds and hundreds of them, but they ended up with uh, quite a small number. 
and we're also facing cost overruns and 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 all sorts of problems with the F-35 here as well. I think it's interesting that the both fifth-generation fighters are having similar kinds of problems. You just mentioned the state of the, the Russian economy, and I think that's, that's interesting. You know, the, the price of oil is collapsing. How is that affecting these weapons programs? Well, I mean, at the moment this year, it's not affecting things. I think what it is affecting, because the Russian defense budget is um, you know, still been growing, the Russian defense budget has grown massively, absolutely massively over the past few years. You know, I think it's, it's tripled in about five years. And that's part of a kind of a wider armaments program, which is tr trying to kind of, you've got to kind of cast your mind back to the end of the Cold War. And after the end of the Cold War, the Soviet Union collapses, and the Russians basically stop investing in defense equipment. So whereas in the, the US, the UK, we continued to invest, the Russians basically had a 15-year period where nothing really happened. Um, they did develop some new kit, they didn't really buy anything, so everything has just got older and older and older. And probably even 15 years ago it still wasn't as good as Western kit back then. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to replace all this, and so they've been throwing all this money at trying to improve the state of their armed forces. And they've got you know, a pretty good way along with that, but they need to keep on growing their defence spending to meet all these plans they have, like for the T-50 stealth fighter or the T-14 Armata main battle tank. And the issue they have is with the price of oil as it is and the state of the Russian economy as it is, with uh, you know, so reliant on oil and then also the effect of US and EU sanctions, um, which is important, particularly when combined with, uh, you know, with the collapse of oil. They could handle sanctions if oil was high, but because it's not, they can't. You know, it's going to mean they're going to have to actually, not only they're not going to be able to keep growing their defence budget, but you know, they're going to have to start trimming their defence budget. And that means that all of these you know, really big plans you know, are going to have to be scaled back. And something the Russians have been trying to do was to co-develop some of their new equipment types with foreign partners. So, for example, the T-50 is meant to be the basis of a collaboration project with the Indians, the FFGA programme basically a version of the T-50 the Indians would buy and co-develop part of it. And they've been having real troubles in their talks with the Indians um, about trying to get this through. At various points, it seemed like a done deal and then it kind of falls by the wayside. So quite what they, what you know, the future of you know, how well they'll be able to actually export the T-50 is, is a good question. That's interesting when you think about Russia and America competing with each other in terms of arms sales to, to various allies. So how has the invasion of Ukraine also affected the kind of the defense industry? Because there was, you know, the, the, the Russian defense industry did have ties to various Ukrainian companies, kind of what's gone out the window now? How has that impacted them? It's had a really big impact on the Russians. It's had a really big impact on the Ukrainians. Um, I mean, you've got to think, the Soviet defense industry lost large sections of it when the Soviet Union collapsed because they ended up in Ukraine or Belarus or wherever else they might, might have been. So a lot of these companies, you know, you know, make parts for, say, Sukhoi or something. You, they're always part of the Soviet Union, but they just happened to end up when the Soviet Union collapsed. They weren't in Russia anymore. They're now in Belarus or Ukraine. When that happened, there was two kind of really main uh, elements that were really important for you know, Russian defense programs ended up in Ukraine. One was the, the Kharkiv Design Bureau, which was uh, one of the two main Soviet tank design and factories. Um, that ended up in, uh, in Kharkiv. And uh, the other one was a company called Motosich, which builds engines for helicopters and also one of its uh, current subsidiaries builds uh, gas turbines for warships. And 
you know, pretty much every single Russian military helicopter has a Ukrainian-built engine in it from Motosic. And pretty much every single Russian warship has a Ukrainian-built engine in it. The fact that Ukraine has stopped all exports of products to, to Russia has had a really big impact. And we've seen you know, deliveries of you know, Russian naval vessels slowed down as a result of this. And you know, if you look at their, their surface navy vessel plans, um, you know, their, big, their, kind of their three main frigate programs are all beset by engine supply issues because they can't get them. And you know, the delivery rate for helicopters domestically has uh, also been impinged. The Ukrainians are still supplying engines to the Russians for export customers, just they're not shipping them to Russia. The Russians have, uh, you know, they're having to spend a very large amount of money on developing these systems in Russia or creating production lines for them. But it's not necessarily that the Russians don't have the capability to be able to make them. You know, a lot of Motosic engines are actually designed in Russia anyway. They're just built in Ukraine. It's just that it wasn't economical for them to do so, to, you know, to build factories and invest in the machinery in Russia when you know, they could be made for cheaper in Ukraine by an existing facility. So they're having to spend all this extra money at a time when they need to not be spending money they don't have, you know, looking to build stuff in Russia for more money than they'd previously be able to buy it from Ukraine or, or wherever. And suddenly that's having a big impact on them. But, I mean, another thing that's had an impact on the Russians is not from the kind of financial point of view, but is the fact that the West has now put an arms embargo on further exports of equipment to the Russians. So, for example, one of the main differences between the T-90 tank and its T-72, the early T-72 predecessor, is that it's got a, a modern thermal sight on it, you know, which is, is so important for, you know, a modern battlefield. And that sight is made in France. So at the moment now, they're not able to receive any more of these sites from France. So they're going to have to develop these in Russia or in Belarus because they have got a close working relationship with the Belarusians. Um, and there are various other you know, equipment types, particularly with these thermal cameras, for both for tanks and for attack helicopters and things like that, that they're now having to develop and pump money into at home. So that might not be something that the Russians were thinking about during the initial takeover of Crimea, I guess. No, I wouldn't have thought so. Um, and I'd have thought when, you know, when the Russians were maybe thinking about the consequences of um, invading Crimea, they were probably looking at it the point of view, you know, where they're thinking oil is going to be, what, like a hundred and something dollars a barrel, whereas now what we're talking about, $30 a barrel. So the Russian economy would have had, you know, so much more ability to absorb all these costs when oil was riding high. They probably underestimated what the, the impact of sanctions were but also the basis of the Russian economy has collapsed. So, you know, collectively, it becomes quite a big issue. We've talked about Russia a lot over the last few months in the media and uh, been so many articles about Russia actually flexing its muscles, showing off this terrific weaponry, showing a revamped armed forces that the West and the rest of the world now has to really stand up and take notice. It sounds like it's really not that simple at all. And that, in fact, the Russians might not be particularly strong right now, whatever it looks like in Syria. Would you say that's accurate? To a certain extent, yeah, absolutely. I mean, your strength is always, it's always relative, isn't it? It's always relative to who else you're dealing with. And it's also relative to how willing you are to use your strength. What the Russians are showing at the moment is they've become very willing to use their strength. So even if to a certain extent, that strength is quite brittle. You know, the kind of the foundations for Russian strength actually aren't that strong. A lot of their equipment is old. 
Um, you know, they're having real economic issues at the moment that's going to affect them down the line. But still, if they're, you know, they're, if they're up for the fight, that makes them, you know, a threat and dangerous to others. So the extent to which they're, they're dangerous is kind of contingent on, you know, their, their, their willingness to use force. And at the moment, they are proving pretty willing to use force. Um, and, you know, they have been pumping money into their military, so their military is stronger than it was five years ago. So from that point of view, you know, it's worth taking notice of. But, you know, are they suddenly now out of nowhere, you know, the global military superpower that the Soviet Union was? Then no, they're not. And I think often people, you know, they see the rise of Russia and think, oh, well, hell, this is a source of concern. But actually you need to think, well, you know, where the Russians are now is probably, I don't know, where the, where the USA was in, I don't know, 1995. You know, they, they've spent a long time not getting very far because they didn't do anything for so long. So the Russians are trying to catch up, but the West is very far in advance. I mean, the US military is by far the global hegemonic power on, you know, on Earth. Um, there really is nothing to rival it. It's enormous from a size point of view. It is exceptionally well-funded. I think the US spends on its military, you know, the same as you know, all the next top 20 countries in the world combined. So. And, and, you know, it has by far the best equipment. So, yes, the rise of Russia is a source of concern, but you have to look at it in perspective. Nick DeLaranaga, thank you so much for the perspective. I definitely have a much better handle on what's going on. So thanks so much for joining us. Yes, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to another episode of War College. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the show, and we're happy to get ideas for future shows. You can follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at underscore War College. And we also post every episode to Reuters' Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and or SoundCloud. Your ratings and comments will help other people find the show. And the positive ones also warm our hearts. Next time on War College. The problem, especially in the Baltics and in Poland, is you have countries that have a very nasty historical habit of poofing in and out of existence. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.